We will welcome this morning's Grand Round speaker. Uh, Dr. Stephanie White is a um, graduate of the University of California, Santa Barbara in microbiology, as well as the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, completed pediatric residency and chief residency at Jackson Memorial Hospital in Miami from where we um, stole her um, in 2015. She has been an assistant professor of pediatrics at the Geisel School of Medicine. She's also in the dean's office as the diversity liaison for student and resident advising at the Geisel School of Medicine, a primary care pediatrician in our general academic pediatrics group uh, here in Lebanon. She has been pursuing also her Master's of Science in Health Professional Education. And you've seen her as a nationally recognized blogger and writer, I think, in Chad Chatters that I've sent out. Most recently, those of you who are in the faculty, have faculty appointments at Geisel, have noted that um, Dr. White has already, in her two and a half years here, become nominated for the Leonard Tile Humanism in Medicine Award, one of the finalists. So I can't necessarily campaign, but if you've received the email, you know what to do in order to respond to that. So uh, Stephanie um, is going to join us, I think, for the first time at this podium at Grand Round. So welcome. All right, let's try again. Can you guys all hear okay? So this morning's um, discussion is entitled True Colors, Reflections on Race and Its Implications for Our Learners, Patients, and Institutions. And this presentation has taken many forms during its creation. My hope is to provide a combination of historical reference, personal experiences, current thoughts from the literature on race and racism, and some best practices or next steps that we should consider as medical educators. A couple weeks ago, I had the privilege of attending the Association of American Medical Colleges, the AAMC, conference on the Group for Diversity and Inclusion and the Group on Women in Medicine and Science. If it makes you feel any better, there isn't an institution across this country that has this figured out. And we are all struggling with ways to engage our learners and increase our diversity. Our learning objectives for today will be to understand the social construct of race, to demonstrate an understanding of minority health disparities, to describe examples of the ways that race intersects medicine and contributes to these health disparities, and to propose strategies that can mitigate bias for patients, learners, and our institution. So while acknowledging that I have no conflicts of interest to resolve, I would like to take a minute to set the stage for this talk. For the purpose of this presentation, I speak to you from the lens of a heterosexual, cisgendered black female and the mother of two, in my opinion, adorable black boys. <laughs> I start with this because I realize that I too have my own biases and I view the world, current events, and my experiences through this lens. I also state this because I feel that we have been increasingly afraid or uncomfortable using words like race, racism, black, white, and just so you are aware, I am likely going to use these words in every single slide of this presentation. <laughs> so brace yourselves. Finally, many of the statistics and experiences that I speak about will focus on African Americans, since this is where most of the research on race and health comes from. But I want to recognize that the Native American, Asian American, Pacific Islander, and Latinx communities have also been the target of health harming racial discrimination, and I do not want to minimize their experience. 
So let's start from the beginning. How do we define and measure race? It has long been stated that race is a socially constructed idea. In fact, in 1906, W.E.B. Du Bois published The Health and the Physique of the Negro American, in which he expressed concern that race was being used as a biological explanation for what he understood to be a social and cultural differences between different populations of people. As you look at the racial categories over the last 200 years, you note slight variations and can imagine perhaps some of the social climate changes that were going on during the time to prompt these changes. We now know from studying the genomes of individuals from different parts of the world that there are actually no genetic differences from someone from, say, Europe or the continent of Africa. In fact, last year, an article in the Journal of Science encouraged the U.S. National Academy of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine to convene a panel of experts from biological sciences, social science, and the humanities to recommend ways for scientists to move past the use of race as a tool for classification in both laboratory and clinical research. The authors argued that phasing out racial terminology in biological sciences would send an important message that historical racial categories that are treated as natural and infused with notions of superiority or inferiority have no place in biology. <laughs> However, the, also, the authors acknowledge that using race as a political or social category to study racism and its biological effects remains necessary. Such research is important to understand how structural inequities and discrimination produce health disparities in different groups. So why do these conversations matter? Minorities are soon to be the majority of the U.S. population. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, in 2014, there were more than 20 million children under the age of five living in the U.S., um, 20 million minority children living in the U.S., and 50% of them were minorities. The minority population is expected to rise to 56% of the total population by the year 2060 compared to our current 38%. In 1985, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services released the Heckler Report, and this was the first comprehensive study to document the health status of minorities. This data has continued to be monitored for the past 30 years, and the changes in those disparities have been discussed widely in the health literature. Despite the advances that we've made in medicine over this time, there continues to be a significant difference between the death rates of white and black patients. Last year, Congresswoman Dr. Robin Kelly from Chicago, the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus Health Brain Trust, compiled a report to examine the nationwide health disparities that continue to persist since this first Heckler report. As you can see, black patients are more likely to die of cancer, diabetes, heart disease, and strokes than white patients. But these are all diseases that are more prevalent in the adult population. What does this mean for pediatrics? Infant mortality is an important indicator of the health of a nation. As a country, it is important to note the continued work we need to do to address our infant mortality rate. According to the CDC, in 2014, the National Vital Statistics Report, the U.S. ranks behind many other developed nations. And for our neonatology colleagues in the room, this pattern holds true even after adjusting for our medical advances with preterm and low birth weight infants. 
Our goal for Healthy People 2020 is to achieve an infant mortality rate lower than 6.0 infant deaths per thousand live births. And we're currently at 6.1, which it seems like this 0.1 difference would not be that significant, but we're not there yet. There is notable disparity when the data is separated by race. Black infants in the United States are over twice as likely to die before their first birthday than our non-Hispanic white infants. And in 2012, the infant mortality rate for black infants was higher than the 1985 rate for white infants. According to the CDC, the top four leading causes of death for black infants are low birth weight, congenital malformations, maternal complications, and sudden infant death syndrome. Low birth weight status has the highest black-white mortality gap, with black infants being 3.5 times more likely to die compared to non-Hispanic white infants. And neither social economic status or maternal risk factors can entirely explain this, these racial disparities. In fact, the portion of the gap that can be explained by known risk factors has decreased over the past 20 years, while the unexplained portion has remained relatively unchanged. Last month, there was an article published in the American Journal of Public Health on the progress that has been made over the last 15 years in addressing the black-white infant mortality gap. Analysis of this gap on the state level showed that for seven states, improvements have been made in reducing this disparity. And if sustained, could lead to racial equality of infant mortality outcomes by the year 2050. So 23 years from now, things may be even in seven states. Notably, Massachusetts actually ranked number one in the nation for having the lowest black infant mortality rate and number one for making the greatest progress in um, decreasing the black-white ratio. If we eliminated this racial gap, we could save 12 babies per day. As former writer and civil rights activist Audre Lorde once stated, there is no such thing as a single-issue struggle because we do not live single-issue lives. Intersectionality has become a buzzword in academia, and in the Upper Valley, intersectionality is the key factor when we talk about issues faced by our poor, rural, often white patients. Alone, each of these things may not be that big of a problem, but the combination of them leads to some of our most challenging cases. Some of these points were discussed in Dr. Beaton's recent Grand Rounds presentation as she discussed rural patients and their difficulty accessing the healthcare system. Intersectionality holds that there is no singular experience of an identity. For example, we cannot understand women's health solely from the lens of gender. It is necessary to consider other social categories, such as class, ability, and race, to have a fuller understanding of the range of women's health concerns. Black and Latina women, for example, experience different health disparities and problems accessing health care than white women do. But what is it about racial differences that accounts for the disparities between black and white patients? So Dr. Ashinta Anderson, a pediatrician and researcher at the University of California, Riverside, studies the impact of race and racism on child health. She recently presented her work at the Pediatric Academic Society Conference earlier this month, and while I was unable to attend the conference, she graciously shared her data. Her latest research question is, what is the association between perceived racial discrimination and child health? She utilized the U.S. Census Bureau National Survey of Children's Health from 2011 to 2012. 
Parents were asked, was your child ever treated or judged unfairly because of his or her race or ethnic group? Her outcome variables were excellent child health, obesity, and ADHD. Dr. Anderson found that a child's odds of having ADHD increased by 3.2% with exposure to racism, regardless of their social economic background. She also found that those who experienced incidents of racism were more than 5% less likely to be rated as having excellent health by their parents. So what is racism? Racism can be defined as a phenomenon that maintain or exacerbate avoidable and unfair inequities in power, resources, or opportunities across racial, ethnic, and cultural religious groups. Racism can be expressed through beliefs, emotions, behaviors, and practices, and can occur at three levels. Internalized racism, which is the incorporation of racist beliefs into one's worldview. Interpersonal racism, which are racist interactions between individuals. And systemic or institutional racism, which is racism that occurs through policies and practices within organizations and institutions. Research of racial discrimination and health has primarily focused on interpersonal discrimination. It is viewed as a psychosocial stressor that operates through the stress pathways. Additionally, as cited in a Lancet article last month, there is growing evidence linking experiences of discrimination to biomarkers of disease and well-being, including allostatic load, telomere length, cortisol dysregulation, and inflammatory markers. A 2015 study by Dartmouth College biological anthropologist Zenaida Thayer evaluated whether the stress hormone cortisol increased in pregnant women in response to discrimination experiences. She evaluated the saliva samples from 64 mothers and infants. 34 percent of these mothers reported discrimination, and her results showed that women, these women had worse self-rated health higher evening cortisol levels, and infants with higher cortisol reactivity. Dr. Thayer concluded that discrimination experiences can have biological impacts in pregnancy and across generations. Researchers have also provided this as a possible reason for some of the disparities in the numbers of black infants with low birth weight and our high infant mortality rate. In April, Acosta Ackerman Barger published a piece in academic medicine entitled Breaking the Silence, Time to Talk About Race and Racism. Dr. Acosta is the new chief diversity officer of the, American, um, the Association of American Medical Colleges, the AAMC. In this article, the authors state, recent events in the United States have catalyzed the need for all educators to begin paying attention to and discovering ways to dialogue about race. No longer can health professions educators ignore or avoid these difficult conversations. Health profession students are now demanding them. Cultural sensitivity and unconscious bias training are not enough. Goodwill and good intentions are not enough. Current faculty development programs are no longer sufficient to meet the educational challenges of delving into issues of race, power, privilege, identity, and social justice. So we're gonna do a 20 second exercise. I would like each of you to close your eyes and think about how you would engage a student or colleague in a dialogue on race, racism, oppression, or the invisibility of privilege.
What would you say to them? How would you feel? What would you do after the conversation was over? Okay, you can open your eyes. How did that feel? Were you uncomfortable or overwhelmed? The article affirms that engaging in these conversations can be overwhelmingly stressful for untrained faculty before any curriculum on race and racism can be developed for students and before faculty members can begin facilitating conversations about race and racism. Faculty must receive proper training through intense and introspective faculty development. Our Geisel students not only care about these issues, but they are actively taking it upon themselves to discuss and educate each other. In this academic year alone, our students have invited anti-racist activist and writer Tim Wise to keynote their MLK celebrations. They've organized a regional conference to discuss the physician's role in pursuing healthcare equity through advocacy. And they've started an elective beyond the books. Geisel affords students the opportunities to create electives to supplement their med school curriculum. Last year, a group of first-year students felt the need to create an elective to prepare medical students to become competent, compassionate healthcare providers to underserved populations. In working with the leaders of Beyond the Books in the beginning of the year, I was not only impressed with their level of organization, but also with their thoughtfulness. While their curriculum is extensive, I wanted to share an excerpt from their statement of rationale that I feel illustrates their level of understanding of the importance of discussing race. While the health of all disadvantaged populations is influenced to some degree by harmful structural factors, minorities are disproportionately affected. This is in part the result of institutional racism, such as residential segregation, which has functioned to maintain historical racial inequities in health and socioeconomic status. Due to the large degree to which the health of disadvantaged populations is crippled by adverse environmental and social economic factors, medical curriculum must extend beyond biology to provide future physicians with an understanding of the social context within which they will work. So these students are the ones that would be asking you questions in clinic. And as their educators, we owe it to them to join the discussion, to advocate, and to speak up on their behalf. So how do we do this? Aside from engaging in discussions and attending events every once in a while when available, those of us in the room that interact with students clinically need to understand that the discomfort in talking about race goes both ways. During first and second years, with the exception of the on-doctoring precepting experience, students are in lectures or small groups. If an issue arises that makes them feel uncomfortable, they can look around the room to see if anyone else noticed it. They can talk to their classmates after class before discussing the issues with, their, with staff members or faculty. And we all do this. We have those moments when someone says something and we kind of look at someone across the room to make sure that we're not crazy and we weren't the only ones who noticed that. We need that affirmation sometimes. But in the clinic setting, there is usually no one else to ask. And if we as faculty do not acknowledge the situation, students are left to deal with their feelings alone. Last year, a fourth-year student from the University of Virginia School of Medicine wrote an op-ed discussing her experiences with race and medicine. 
She stated, again and again, during my four years of training, I encountered racism and ignorance directed either at patients or me and other students of color. Yet it was very hard for me to speak up, even politely, because as a student, I felt I had no authority and didn't want to seem confrontational to senior physicians who would be writing my evaluations. She went on to discuss an experience that she had on her medicine rotation in which a patient called her colored girl three times in front of the attending. The attending did nothing and did not say anything afterwards. And despite all the other positive experiences and interactions that she had had with this teacher, the silence is what she will remember most. In speaking with our students, they struggle with patient encounters that ask them questions about their race and ethnicity, having other healthcare professionals make inappropriate comments about patients, and being subjected to petting. One student commented, what ethnicity are you is a question they get fairly frequently. I don't mind the question so much, but the awkwardness that ensues when the patient starts guessing is pretty uncomfortable. <laughs> I never really know how to respond to that. Do I answer? Do I let them guess? Do I move on to the next HPI question? And then there was that classic question I received recently. You're not one of those Syrians, are you? I just laughed at that out of awkwardness because how are you supposed to respond? Much like the student in the op-ed, these situations are uncomfortable and sometimes embarrassing. Another student commented about an experience in which as soon as she sat down to do the interview, the patient reached over and ran her hands through the student's hair. I just had to touch your hair, she said with no remorse, as if she had the right to pet me and highlight my difference. I didn't know how to respond, so I just tried to press through the interview, and even though I was completely embarrassed, I finished. When my preceptor came back into the room, the patient giggled. She let me touch her hair. I wanted to say, no, I did not. We work in a field where our duty for professionalism and pressure for customer service force us to give up pieces of ourselves and accept these awkward situations. In the case of our learners, they have the added concern of their performance evaluations and how they will be perceived if they speak up. One of the most difficult things about processing bias is that incidents occur when one is least expecting it, catching us off guard and making it difficult to respond appropriately. Last year, I met Maya. She was a four-year-old female who presented to the outpatient clinic for a new acute concern of constipation. I completed the history and physical, discussed withholding and onchopresis, and came up with a constipation plan. And as my hand's on the doorknob, the mom asks, are you Dominican? As physicians, we all hate the doorknob phenomenon because we know that there's not going to be an easy question that comes once our hand is on the door. So I quickly scrolled through options trying to figure out where the conversation was headed, but I simply replied, no, I'm African-American. Mom's response was, oh, I thought you may be Dominican. She then proceeded to tell me, I'm pregnant and the baby's father is Dominican. My ex, Maya's father, is extremely racist, and when he found out that the baby, when he found out about the baby, he began telling Maya bad things about brown people. And now, after Maya spends the weekend with her, with him, she comes back and she acts totally different around my boyfriend. And so now I'm worried that in three months, when this baby comes and looks completely different from her, how will she react to that? 
So I'm glad that you can be her doctor because I hope that she sees that your skin color doesn't make you a bad person. So this potentially negative comment, which then kind of turned positive, but still left me puzzled with how to respond. How do we talk to children about race and racism? And when do we do it? As we know, children are curious and they're inquisitive and they notice from an early age that kids are similar to or different from them. The feedback they receive about these differences from their parents and community can contribute to racial bias. As early as six months, a baby's brain can notice race-based differences. By two to four, children can internalize racial bias. And by age 12, many children become set in their beliefs. But this gives parents a decade to mold the learning process with the hope that it decreases racial bias and improves cultural understanding. The process of learning or preventing racial bias is a lot like learning a new language. Biology determines a critical early period, as well as a later window where learning is more difficult. Envision a child raised bilingual versus a child who starts learning Spanish in middle school. Like language immersion, children exposed to society can gain fluency in racial bias, even if their parents do nothing. Thus, for some children whose environment may not include many opportunities to engage in diverse activities, the role of parents, teachers, and I would argue pediatricians can play is even more significant. In a publication from the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, William Beardsley, the academic chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at Boston Children's Hospital, and Alvin Passant, another psychiatrist from Boston Children's and an expert on race relations in America, note that the critical period for starting the conversation is between five and eight years of age. Between five and eight, children are old enough to begin thinking about social issues, but young enough to remain flexible in their beliefs. By fourth grade, children's racial attitudes start to grow more rigid. So what are the recommendations? Having a diverse friend group and exploring opportunities to do things that are more integrated is important. These opportunities and interactions help children break down the biases they may have otherwise believe. Toys, books, and community activities are all things that parents can consider diversifying. In the outpatient setting, we participate in the Reach Out and Read program, a program to promote early literacy for patients from six months to five years of age. We purposely offer a diverse collection of books to role model this behavior and, and expose patients to diverse characters. Additionally, Bright Futures guidelines recommends that health professionals address problems, stressors, and concerns during well-child checks. And the list actually includes discrimination, prejudice, and lack of cultural opportunities, which I was surprised to read. I'll come back to a potential strategy for dealing with this in a few slides. Finally, current events, especially lately, allow for these conversations to occur with children and adolescents of all ages. For example, the Black Lives Matter movement made it possible to say something like, you know, we live in an unfair world where some people are not treated the same all the time. Sometimes this is only based on how we look. As the conversation continues, the concept of fairness is tangible even for three and four-year-olds to understand. According to the pre-survey that about 84 of you completed, over two-thirds of you read a race-related article or social media post at least weekly. 
which should afford lots of opportunities to engage in these topics. So at this point, some of you may be thinking that this is all just way too much. If perceiving racial differences cause so many problems, then downplaying the distinction should limit the potential for bias. And logically, this seems to make sense and was why 20 years ago there became an emphasis on colorblindness. Colorblindness is an approach to manage diversity in which racial distinct distinctions are de-emphasized. It quickly emerged as a dominant strategy for advancing racial equality in, in education, organizational, legal, and political domains in the late 90s and early 2000s. However, the effects of colorblindness have been studied and the logic may not hold up. A 2010 study by Evan Alphabaum in um, Psychological Science explored the effects of promoting a colorblind approach to diversity among eight to 11-year-old students. Students received different books that focused on being colorblind versus valuing diversity. One book emphasized the need to focus on how we're all similar to our neighbors rather than how we are different, while the other book showed that race is important because our racial differences make us special. After the storybooks, the students listened to three stories featuring varying degrees of racial bias, from no bias to ambiguous bias and then to explicitly biased stories. They were then asked questions. The results showed that students who had read a value diversity version of the storybook were more likely to detect evidence of racial discrimination. 43% of students perceived discrimination in the ambiguous story, and 77% perceived discrimination in the explicitly biased story. When you compare this to the students that received the colorblind condition, only 10% of children perceived discrimination in the ambiguous story and 50% in the explicit story. The students initially primed with a colorblind mindset described the stories in a manner significantly less likely to trigger adult intervention. Thus, while colorblind messages appear to decrease the recorded ca reported cases of bias, it may just actually adjust the lens through which bias is perceived, allowing explicit forms of bias to persist. For those of you that completed the pre-survey, 55% said that you choose to deal with race by being colorblind and treating everyone the same. And this is the socially desirable answer. It's what we all want to think of ourselves as treating patients fairly and equally. And it's not a wrong thought. However, sometimes despite our good intentions, the outcomes may be less than desired. So how does this fit in with our institution? Dartmouth-Hitchcock prides itself on developing a culture of caring. Our workforce diversity statement emphasizes that we aim to constantly demonstrate our inherent unwavering value of and respect for the rich spectrum of human differences in race, ethnicity, gender, age, and socioeconomic status. Our senior leadership demonstrates a strong commitment to attracting, retaining, and supporting employees who reflect the diversity of our broader society. And so what does this look like for our faculty? According to the 2015 AAMC faculty roster, black, Hispanic, and Native Americans comprise 7% of the full-time faculty at medical schools across the country. These numbers may actually be slightly larger since about 11% of the faculty did not report their race or ethnicity. Our faculty numbers are likely not shocking. This is for our 2015-16 data of full-time faculty at the rank of assistant professor and above. 
And so diversity should not be an outcome. It's not a matter of necessarily watching numbers increase or decrease over time, per se. But diversity is a means of achieving excellence, excellence in education, patient care, and research. And at some point, you do need a critical mass to do that work. Our providers, like our medical students, are also encountering patient bias. Last month, our very own Dr. Julie Kim wrote an op-ed about her experience when a father requested a different team to take care of his child. An Asian American, an African American, and Latino American were not the type of doctor he wanted for his son, even if they were the best providers to treat his son's cancer. <laughs> Upon reaching out to our hospital administrators, Dr. Kim discovered that other providers have also been seeking strategies for dealing with racist patients. The volume of these attacks have increased enough to prompt risk management to develop a zero tolerance policy that supports its employees, meaning that if a patient is clinically stable and expresses a form of bigotry, providers can help facilitate the patient's transfer to another medical center. In our pre-survey, the majority of you have either been the recipient of racial bias or have directly observed racial bias in, from a colleague or student. Unfortunately, considering the climate both locally and nationally, these instances are unlikely to improve anytime soon. Before I move on to possible next steps, I would like to present the other results from the pre-survey questions. Not surprising, over 90% of us feel that our cultural competency skills are at least average. However, slightly less, 77%, actually feel comfortable discussing race-related topics. Speaking personally, I think this is a this is really a difficult question. I don't know if I will ever truly feel comfortable having these conversations because every situation is different and they do catch you off guard. There is a degree of openness and vulnerability that is needed to make them meaningful and that can be challenging. So where do we go from here? For us in pediatrics, the AAP policy on enhancing pediatric workforce diversity and providing culturally effective pediatric care discusses the value of regular clinician self-reflection, self-knowledge, and self-critique to ensure cultural competence. The AAP also has a toolkit with hands-on resources for providers and office staff. But on the individual level, we can all work on the concept of allyship. And so there are lots of terms as we talk about race and how to be more culturally competent. But I find that allyship, maybe it's just for my pediatric background, is um, one of the most understandable. And so this is a step beyond cultural competency training, which focuses on an individual's responsibility to um, counteract interprofessional or interpersonal discrimination. But allyship, rather, is a lifelong process of building relationships based on trust, consistency, and accountability with marginalized individuals and or groups of people. It is the active, consistent, and arduous practice of unlearning and reevaluating norms and bias. And it requires one to actively acknowledge our privileges and openly discuss them, to listen more and speak less, to be educated, but not to be expected for others to educate us, and to do our own research to facilitate the discussion. We must acknowledge that everyone has preferences and biases, and individual work can be done to discover our own unconscious biases. We must also realize that we all have a voice. I received permission to share a conversation I had with Steve Chapman last year. 
after he attended the seventh grade Civil War night at the Richmond Middle School. In this event, students have to create a poster about a soldier from the Civil War period. And Steve commented on his disappointment that none of the posters were on black soldiers. Considering it was Civil War night, this seemed inappropriate. These comments were also shared with teachers and school officials. And when we fast forward to a year, I was speaking with a friend and she commented on attending Civil War night and that the students were so excited to share their work, even the ones that were presenting on black soldiers. And so <laughs> I don't know that Steve had that big of an influence. Um, and it could have all just been coincidence. But we do all have a voice, and we can use it to impact the most impressionable. On the patient level, we can work on being more aware of race and how it impacts our patients. As the AAP toolkit suggests, we can develop a list of community resources for cultural exploration, perhaps adding some information to our family resource guide that we print and give out to patients in clinic. Recently, I've had the pleasure of participating in an after-school program at Lebanon High School for students of color to discuss race and identity. And I've been really impressed with students that are willing to stay after school to meet with Dartmouth faculty and staff to discuss these issues. But it shows that our adolescents are thinking about these concepts, that they're working on their identity and trying to figure out how to navigate the world. As we think about adding one more thing to our growing list of items that must be addressed in well-child checks, we can consider adding the topic of race to our teen questionnaire. So currently we give our teenagers a tablet with screening questions prior to their well-child visits. There's one portion that states, please check whether you have questions or are worried about any of the following. And then there are 12 items that are listed, including bullying, violence, fitting in, and belonging. And so perhaps including a question on race or culture should be added as well. We won't know until we ask, and this is a way to hear from our patients. For our learners, the standard practice for teaching about race and health is one in which race is often discussed, but conversations about racism are sidelined with few hours, if any, devoted to social epidemiologists, medical anthropologists, social scientists, or historians who actually focus on racism and health. We as educators can work to better utilize our resources and bring in faculty from other parts of campus to ground our conversations and provide historical context to our discussions. But we also must remember who we are training. We are teaching future physicians who will go to various parts of the country to practice medicine. While some may stay in northern New England, we must anticipate that most will experience a more diverse patient population, and they need to be prepared to do so. We can actively participate in student-initiated activities and explore topics on race and inequity. But more importantly, <clears throat> we can acknowledge bias in real time and create an environment where our learners are not afraid of jeopardizing their evaluations for speaking up. <coughs> Finally, at the institution levels, Drs. Kim, Pinto Powell, and myself are working on developing a protocol or algorithm for implementing the anti-racism policy once it's created. Since these encounters can be difficult to process, it is important for all providers to feel supported and know their options for how to respond. Many, including the AAMC, would say that the gold standard is for medical centers to have a chief diversity officer. 
The Chief Diversity Officer may coach senior leadership around diversity and inclusion issues, provide cultural competency training for organizational members, develop diversity metrics and processes to assess effectiveness of efforts, and to help infuse diversity into academic and clinical experiences for our students. At one point, there were conversations about DH creating a position for a chief diversity officer, but shortly thereafter, the Geisel and DH reorganization took place, and these efforts were put on hold. Nonetheless, I think you could see the value that this person would bring to our institution, and I believe that it is something worth advocating for. We don't live in a colorless society. We must speak less and listen more, close our eyes and look within, and acknowledge our biases where they come from and see the true colors of those around us. I look forward to your questions and discussions, but first I want to thank you for those of you that completed the pre-survey and let you know that there will be another survey coming out at the end of this talk. Um, and I would also like to thank my colleagues from across the Dartmouth community that are in attendance today and for their work for supporting students, staff, and faculty. Thank you. Yeah. Kim. Thank you, Stephanie. I think this is a really important topic, and um, just starting to bring things to the surface is a really important first step. And I had a different, so I have two questions. Mm -hmm. One, I had a different reaction mm -hmm. to the quiet, you know, close your eyes mm -hmm. exercise. I actually feel like getting things out into the open is liberating. To me, it's more overwhelming to have stuff inside mm -hmm. that, you, that you can't talk about or whatnot. And so, um, so uh, I don't know what that means, but um, but I think it's an important way to think about opening up conversations. Mm -hmm. Is how can we how can we normalize that process so it doesn't feel um, negative? And I don't know if that's sort of one strategy for that. Yeah. And then the sec my second question was just if you could talk a little bit more about you talked about learners' experiences, sort mm -hmm. of wonderful experiences, but about the assessment process and bias in the assessment process. Mm -hmm. um, and that um, I think that, um, well, I know that we do a lot, we make a lot of um, uh, implicit assumptions as we're coming to a final assessment, mm -hmm. and that the more objective we're able to be about that, sort of the, the more you probe, mm -hmm. the better that uh, more accurate that assessment is and remove some of that bias and what your thoughts are about ways to um, to better assess to remove some of that um, implicit bias. So in terms of your um, first comment or statement, um, so having you close your eyes was really just so you guys weren't all looking at each other, um, trying to figure out what you would do in that situation. Um, I do think that these conversations do need to be out in the open, but at the same time, sometimes we speak a little bit too much and we do need to do some self-reflection. In terms of student evaluation, so it's interesting, there's a current discussion in student affairs and trends across um, medical school leadership about things even like the Dean's Letter and how language is different for men and women and minority students do not get the same level of you know, characteristics that other students get based on the same similar type of um, performance. And I think that it's going to be really hard to fix the problem because everything is so subjective. Um, we, we don't have a good way of assessing clinical performance without being subjective because it's based on just nebulous factors. And 
despite you know, increased efforts in faculty development, I think it's always going to be something that's going to come back and need to be addressed. Um, currently, one of the the thoughts is having a more standardized dean's letter, for example, for residency programs, so that all of kind of the flowery language that some people get and other people don't gets weeded out. But even before you get to that point, it comes back to individual interactions and how students are, are performing on rotations. And I don't, I don't have a good answer to it, but there are numerous cases where it is true. Um, and I think that's something that as educators we need to work on. Kathy. Stephanie, that was an amazing talk. Um, Keith may not be able to campaign for her, but I can. I think. <laughs> um, if you read the Humanism Award nomination, her students nominated her, and it is the most powerful paragraph about her humility and support and passion for the work that she does. So I'm going to campaign for We try to honor patient and family centered care. That's mm -hmm. a core component of what we are. Um, and the tension between honoring a patient or family wishes and not promoting institutional racism. For example, when I was a medical student, without knowing who I am, and I rotated through the VA system, we had a lot of Vietnam vets, routinely we did not have Asian medical students or residents go into the room because it seemed reasonable not to trigger PTSD in some of these veterans. Mm -hmm. Fast forward again to me as a faculty member and having to support learners who, um, whose patients have requested not to have a person of color, whether that be, I've had it for Muslim students, I've had it for African American students, I've had it, Dr. Kim and I got fired for not being Asian enough. So how do we support patient and family-centered care and not also promote institutional racism? Mm -hmm. So that's a hard question and something that um, in our discussions with Dr. Kim and Pinchapal, we've been trying to kind of grapple with. And our idea behind creating a module or algorithm is to give options for having the conversation. I think that we can't have a knee-jerk reaction and just say, okay, well, I'm off the case. It can get put on to so-and-so because that's not always feasible. But at the same time, we don't want to just kick everyone out without understanding where these ideas are coming from. But how do you have that conversation and what do you say are the parts that are difficult. And so that's one of the things that we're working on. You know, how do we empower our providers to feel comfortable asking those first couple open-ended questions to see where these feelings are coming from? Is it because some reasonable, horrible experience in their life happened and they can't deal with it right now? You know, they can't deal with it right now, but it's not um, necessarily as bigoted as we thought it was, but if they can have a conversation about it and be open to what we're able to offer, I think that's the first step in making sure that we, we don't go overboard. Theodosia. Hi, Theodosia. You know, when you asked that question, it immediately jumped to me as a black person, not in the medical field, um, that I've never had the option of necessarily choosing a person of color as my doctor. And although we are in America with the history of slavery, and I just think about all of that convoluted, like, to have the option is a privilege. And then, I mean, how does that, how do you, you know, how do minority people 
um, do that when a white person comes in as their doctor? Do they, is there any history or data on them being able to choose? Well, being how the percentage of African American doctors in the United States <laughs> is what it is. Right. And and many patients don't have that option. I think, you know, if you live in areas where you have the ability to choose your provider, that may be one of the things that you take into consideration. Um but, you know, it is a privilege that some people have and other people don't because there is more availability. Um, yeah, it's, it, is, it is what it is. But that's why we need to recruit more students to go into medicine. Thank you for that great talk, uh, very eye-opening. I was wondering, as you were speaking, uh, it, it may have been in there somewhere, but I, I missed it, uh, this religion enter into this at all. I know that uh, I have experienced anti-Semitism. Uh, I can imagine some people might say that I want to have a doctor or this or that, whatever it might be, Muslim. Mm -hmm. Have you talked about that in our current situation here in, in your planning for this algorithm or protocol? It, it is included in the algorithm. Mm -hmm. to what feedback the student has received throughout their time. Um, if something seems to come out of you know, thin air in terms of end of, the, end of the rotation evaluation, then perhaps those sentiments could be, I guess, more justified in the student thinking, you know, is this something against me? But if they've received constant feedback from, you know, week one and week two or however many days that they're with you on things that they can do and improve and those things have been documented and are expressed with others, then some of those situations should be avoidable or justifiable. Um, but I think that we're not great at giving feedback and we're not great at documenting feedback and so it's hard to you know, to back up your claim that, well, actually there's been all these issues all along. And you know, sometimes there will be feedback from other providers in different parts of the institution that you're able to kind of corroborate your, your experience on. But I think it's difficult when students don't get the necessary feedback that they need. Can I comment? Mm -hmm. So I think um, uh, both from my own experiences and in being involved in some dialogue, partially about race, but about everything, bias in general, 
Um, I think that one of the most important parts is the is the objectivity of the this is what happened and here like here's mm -hmm. sort of documentation of the exactly what happened kind of things. And I think it's very very natural for every learner, regardless of what the personal factors are, to have an initial reaction to whatever they're hearing about uh, sort of personalizing those pieces. And I think that um, making sure taking extra care to make sure that the language used and the ways that things are expressed are not sort of feeding into those pieces. Um, and then making sure that they that they truly are getting a fair assessment, I think is really, really important. And that's on us mm -hmm. um, to make sure that that's happening. Um, so those are the pieces that, from other things. Mm -hmm. yeah. Jesse, what about um, on the patient side? How do we make how do we make people comfortable having the conversations about their biases? Um, I had a patient who was very religious and did not want to be seen here because we perform abortions. Mm. And, and, it, and they didn't come to multiple appointments, probably precipitated by that, and it took her a year to have that conversation. So when we have rainbows in, in rooms to make kids feel comfortable talking about those issues, but how do we help families be able to say, I'm uncomfortable with you for being here because? And I think the first thing we do is not be judgmental in terms of understanding the reasons for noncompliance. It's it's easy to jump to conclusions, as we all know about why the patient's a no-show and why they didn't schedule. and. Um, and it's much harder to have the conversations to figure out, well, not necessarily harder, but it takes time that we don't often have to have the conversations about, okay, well, what's going on and what are the barriers to you coming for follow-up? Now, what you do with that information after she reveals it to you is, you know, is completely different because there's only so much we can we can do. We can't go see her in the parking lot. We can't go, you know, um, see her in a different clinic, but at least putting everything out there and her understanding your perspective. But if it takes her a year to feel comfortable telling you that, that's hard. So thank you, Dr. White, for mm -hmm. really outstanding grand rounds. I was um, particularly struck by your slides and discussion of the medical students mm -hmm. and their idealism and energy, and it just reinforces to me how much of the hope for our profession lies with them. But I have to confess that even though I coordinate the Global Community Pediatrics Program, I'm not always aware of what the Center for Equity and some of those activities at the medical school are. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if there's a way that our department can connect with that center in such a way that um, talks and announcements come um, to us. Because uh, I would love to be more engaged in that as well. And while I'm confessing, I did not see Dr. Kim's editorial or, or article. It's a good one. It's, it's a good one. I can't speak for the health and equity, but I did link to Dr. Kim's editorial in the most recent chat chat. I will do exactly that. So, and Geisel, so, so don't ignore your Geisel mail. <laughs> <laughs> I highlighted too, and some of us sort of skim over that. Um, I, I'll take the, the last question. Stephanie had highlighted the 
the particular challenges of the era in which we now live mm -hmm. politically. Um, you also highlighted the demographic trends that will, within a generation or two, make the minority the majority. Mm -hmm. So are we, are we in a time-limited state, or is this a perpetual, I'm leading, it's a leading question, mm -hmm. is this a perpetual problem that, that there's always going to be the challenge of how we treat the other, someone different than ourselves? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there, I, it is a leading question. I do think that there's always going to be the challenge of treating the other because the social context changes. You know, if you looked at things eight years from now compared to the news stories and environmental things that are going on in our country right now, that foundation is very different. And we constantly have to reevaluate and reflect how we as health professionals fit in with that. Um, but it can't be a conversation that ends. It does have to continue. So, Kathy, neither of us needed to campaign for first time. She speaks for herself. <laughs>